So what is your story? Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a preacher who, after finishing preparing for Sunday's message, it was Friday afternoon, uh, took a drive out to the cemetery to pray, to pray about Sunday's message to pray about the impact it would have on the congregation. Sometimes preachers have been known to do that. And is there, is there a more appropriate place than a cemetery to think through the effects and consequences of getting God's word out to God's people? I mean, lives futures, marriages, eternities, the trajectory of these things can, can be altered and changed for eternity because of a well-timed message from God. And so there this preacher was in the preacher's car, in the cemetery, praying through Sunday's message, Friday afternoon, And it was just when the sun was getting ready to go down. I mean, just at sunset. And that haze of dusk was in the air that the preacher was thinking and praying through. And and then it was time to leave. And so, stuck the key in the ignition. And just before doing that, this preacher heard some noise at the edge of the cemetery and looked up. And there the preacher saw this this, hadn't noticed it before, this, uh, this open grave. Got out of the car, started walking toward this open grave. Now, I mean, it should spook some people for something like this, but not this preacher because of the noise. The noise, it sounded like, it sounded like the clanking of utensils against dinner plates coming out of this this open grave and the preacher kept walking and came up to this open grave and and it should have spooked the preacher but the preacher was more curious and even as the preacher walked toward this open grave there it was not a normal open grave it was longer than normal it was wider than normal it was deeper than normal because in this open grave was not a coffin or a vault in this open grave deeper and longer and and wider was this table this banquet table this banquet table filled with the most delicious foods one had ever placed eyes on. It was incredible. The preacher was curious, enticed, looking at this this feast that was going on. And the table, 15 to 20 people surrounded this table, gorging themselves on this. I mean, we're talking, this was prime rib, succulent, juicy. We're talking filet. We're talking Cornish hens. We're talking the finest of foods. Incredibly, incredibly tasty. We're talking uh, fresh vegetables, locally grown. <laughs> the leafiest of leafy lettuce. Oh, and, 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 
and the, 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 the Yukon gold, buttery, mashed, fluffy potatoes. And the hot, steamy, better than beef house rolls. Oh my, it was prawns, lobster, beverages, not to speak of the, not to speak of the desserts, the flaky pie crust. It was, it was a banquet, a banquet, a banquet, a banquet in the grave. That's why the preacher was curious more than spooked. The preacher began to notice how, I mean, how, I mean, how the people were piling this food on their plates and then consuming, gorging, gobbling this, this succulent, wonderful, gourmet food. And, and this then is what began to spook the preacher because it seemed as if the more that the people ate as they sat around this table, the hungrier they became, the thinner they became, the more emaciated they became. They filled themselves, and yet at the same time, they were starving themselves right around this table. It was, and, and they were the thinnest, most gaunt, most emaciated people this preacher had ever seen. And some of them, they tried, to, they tried to get out of the grave. And this is really what began to get spooky about it. Because you see, the more they ate, the thinner they got. And it, it was as if then the, the deeper they descended into this, 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 this grave. This banquet in the grave. And the noise was the noise of table service clanking against the plates, but they weren't speaking to each other. They weren't talking to each other. There was no community going on there. They were just, it was as if they weren't even paying attention to themselves. It was just like they were each individual, their own little world there, and some of them tried to to get out and to get out of the grave, but they couldn't, and so they just went back, and they filled themselves more, and they became more emaciated, and, and the deeper they descended into this this, this grave, this banquet in the grave. And, and this is where it really got spooky because right about then, that's when the preacher looked up and noticed that it wasn't just one graveyard in this cemetery. All of a sudden, there were graveyards all over the cemetery that had, were open, that had these banquet tables and 15 to 20 people filling themselves, starving themselves, descending deeper and deeper. And that's when the preacher noticed the headstone at each grave site, one headstone was etched. Strong drink. One headstone was etched. Cocaine. One headstone was etched. Pornography. Another headstone was etched. Bitterness. And still another, anger. And still another, beauty. And still another, career. It was a cemetery of banquets in the grave. Addictions are like that, aren't they? That's what Proverbs 9 says. Verses 13 to 18 says, 
The woman folly is loud. She is undisciplined and without knowledge. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who lack judgment. Stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. There it is. Banquet in the grave. Only it's not a story, is it? I mean, it's, it's, it's life. It's real life. Today we're beginning a series of messages called The Road to Recovery. The Road to Recovery. And this series follows a new ministry that a dedicated team of servant leaders from the Windsor Road Church family. Uh, they've been used by God in a mighty way to begin a new ministry called Celebrate Recovery. Uh, recovery from what? Well, recovery from uh, hurts and habits and hang-ups. Uh, recovery from banquets in the grave. Uh, and the recovery is what God is doing to recover us from these banquets, from, from this kingdom, from this kingdom of addiction and darkness and hurt and hate and pain and bitterness into the kingdom of light and truth and life and love, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven. Deliverance, recovery from one kingdom into God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, and so we're going to be spending some time here uh, over the next two months talking about what, what does recovery look like from these kinds of, of banquets in the grave, these kinds of addictions. And, and, and I just want to stop myself right now because my concern is that someone in here, having heard just what I said about uh, deliverance from addictions of banquets in the grave. M my concern is that someone would say, well, no, no wait a minute. Uh, okay, I'm just going to mentally uh, put the remote control in my brain. I'm going to just push the TV off, and uh, I'll check back in with you, Bolting House, sometime around Father's Day, okay? And I really would want to ask you and caution you not to do that. And, and, and here's why. You know, in the church, it seems like when it comes to addictions, we tend to want to divide people into two groups, those who are prone to addictions and those who are not. And the fact of the matter is, church family, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All of us have. Well, I mean, we are born in the pit we're born in the grave. And furthermore, without any help from anyone else, we then dig ourselves deeper. Who among us ha have not felt the hunger pangs of ungodly cravings? Uh, who, who, of, of, who of us ha has not to some degree tasted voluntary slavery? Really, if we're being honest. 
You know, the only difference is this. The only difference is this. Some of us have addictions that are more noticeable. Some of us have addictions that have more tragic consequences. But in truth, in truth, there is no us and them. There's not. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short. And Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, he said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So here he uses the word picture of, of righteousness as health and sin in terms of sickness and disease. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, <laughs> he wasn't saying that there are righteous. <laughs> no, no one's righteous. We're, we're all in need, okay? We're all sinners. This church is full of sinners. And on top of that, their senior pastor is one too, Okay? So that's, that needs to be said right up front, and that we all, all are in need. And so therefore, what does recovery look like? Well, we're going to see. I want you to turn to a passage of Scripture in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10, tell us what recovery looks like. It tells us what God does to recover us from the kingdom of banquets in the grave to the kingdom of a wonderful banquet feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10, introduce us to uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is, are yet more words about life in the kingdom of life and life in the kingdom of heaven. And the Beatitudes are really a summary of what the entire Sermon on the Mount is all about. And I want us to read, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, uh, we're going to read verses 3 through 10. You'll find that on page 683 of your church Bibles. It's also up on the screen. Let's read these verses together out loud. Here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5. 3 through 10. This is God's Word. And what we're going to do this morning, throughout this series, we're just going to take each beatitude at a time and, and uh, unpack it and kind of ask, you know, what, so what, now what about each beatitude beginning today with Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor. What does that mean? What does all of that about? Well, let's learn together. And I just want to learn together by talking about just really each word and phrase from 
this beatitude, beginning with the word blessed. Blessed. It's the most repeated word in this section you see here. It's repeated. It's there eight times, nine if you include verse 11. What does that mean, blessed? Well, blessed. Well, the word beatitude comes from the Latin beatus, which means blessed, which means happy, happy, happiness, blessedness, beatitudeness. you see? Jesus could, as well, we could also say, happy are the poor in spirit. Now, that's a good word because Americans, Americans like happiness. We do. We love that, we love that emotional sense of well-being. In fact, that's how we define happiness, Right? Uh, by our emotional sense of well-being. And so we're, you know, throughout the course of the day, we tend to want to take our emotional temperature, take the emotional temperature of our children or our spouses, and, and because we like happy. Happy is good. Happy is right. Happy is America. Happy is beatus. Happy is blessed. Here's the deal, though. The Bible has another definition of happiness other than the definition that many Americans have. Yeah. Yeah, Americans tend to want to uh, define happiness uh, as my subjective sense of well-being. And that's not exactly how the Bible defines happiness or blessedness or beatitudeness. I would say that the simplest way to describe how the Bible defines happiness or blessedness is, is this. Happiness is, I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's that's what it means to be blessed, biblically. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I mean, when God is your God, and you belong to him, you can't get any happier. You can't. That's why Revelation 21.3 says, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live among them. And they shall be his people, and God will be present with them and be their God. The Bible says that is happiness. That is blessedness. That is beatitudinous. It is. Biblically, happiness is not contingent on my subjective sense of well-being. Not that that's bad. Not that that's wrong. I like feeling well. Don't you? But that's not what the Bible says biblical happiness is. It's not based on my subjective sense of well-being. It is based on God's objective word. That's biblical happiness. It's not contingent on how I feel. It is contingent on what God says. And God says, you're happy. You are wired to be happy. You're wired to be blessed when you belong to me. And I am your God. And it is so very important that we get that and own that and feel that, church family, because other voices in other cemeteries, in other graveyards, in other banquet tables, those voices, those voices are crying out, I want to be your God. And I want you to be my people. I'm talking about the names etched on those headstones that I spoke of earlier. You know, like beauty. I'm going to be your God. Like substance abuse. I want to be your God. Or like career. Let me be your God. You be my people. 
And those voices are crying out. Haven't you heard those voices? They're crying out today. Materialism, greed, I want to be your God. You be my people. And you might say, well, how in the world can I differentiate between those counterfeit, false voices and the one true voice of the living God? I mean, if they're, if they're all saying, you know, I want to be your God, you, how, how can I tell the difference between the true and the false? And it's simply this, and this is key. The false voices, the counterfeit gods, all of them, all of them, though they have different names on the headstone, they all say the same thing. All of them look you in the eye and they say, it's all about you. It's, it's all about you. Huh? Come to the table. Sweet water, delicious food, it's all about you. It's all about you. Come on. Huh? It's all about you, God. Wasn't that that the bait in the garden? You will be like God, the deceiver said. You will. Every one of those. It doesn't matter what's on the headstone. They all say the same thing. They do. Versus the one true, living, immortal, almighty, all-knowing, ever-present creator and maker of the universe who stands and says, without blinking, It's not about you. It's not about you. You're not the most important person in the universe. Your problems are not the most important in the universe. I'm the most important person in the universe. The Almighty Creator says that (laughs) without blinking. And... He says, there's a God, and you're not him, Randy. Okay? You're not God. And this leads us to the next part of that phrase. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean to be poor in spirit? Does that mean I'm, I'm financially poor? Does that mean I just, need to have a, I just need to have a poor self-esteem? No, it doesn't, no. Uh, here is a great definition of poor in spirit. John Baker has written a book. You can pick it up outside the foyer um, uh, called Life's Healing Choices. Poor in spirit. <laughs> Realize I'm not God, and I admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. That's, that's a really good working definition of poor. Poor in spirit. Recognize that my life is unmanageable. Realize that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing. Now, in the Bible, in the New Testament, there are two words for this word poor. And the first word is the word working poor, uh, where you just kind of live hand-to-mouth kind of poor. You're working and you're, you're, just, you're just barely making it to, to payday. And then you get paid, and then you're just barely making it to the next one. And you're, you're not getting ahead. There's no margin that's going on because you're just, you're working to try to, try to just get even 
kind of poor. That's working poor. That's one definition. The second definition of working poor is beggarly poor, impoverished kind of poor, the kind of poor that uh, 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 we saw in Nepal, where you would have just folks who they couldn't work. They were unable to work. And so they just held their hand out. They were that kind of beggarly, impoverished type of poor. And in Matthew chapter 5, 3, it's the second word. Blessed are the impoverished poor in spirit. I mean, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth when he describes someone who's been recovered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of life, very first words out of his mouth is, if you want out of the kingdom of graveyard banquets, if you want to be freed from the kingdom of darkness and addictions, you must realize that you cannot get out of that graveyard by yourself. You're in too deep. You can't. You're not God. You're powerless to control your tendency to do the wrong thing, and your life is unmanageable, period. You need to buy into that. There's no unrighteous. No, not one. You know, all have gone astray, Paul says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> but no, we've no, we got to get that. We do. We have, we, you know, we, we've got to own that. Because you see, it, it deals with the question of change. How change happens. Why do you want to change? See, the one who's poor in spirit, they, they understand that. Some people want to change. You know, why do you want to get out of the graveyard? Well, just because I do, but why? Why do, why, do you, why do you want to grow in terms of emotional maturity? Why do you want to overcome the bitterness of someone who's wronged you? Why? Why, why, do, you want to, why do you want to grow beyond legalistic self-righteousness? Why do you want to... Uh, to be less bitter, less frustrated. Why do you want to be a better parent or wife or pastor? Why? See, why do you want to change? See, some people want to change. Some people want to change because because it will. They they can prove themselves to God. That's why. Is somehow if I can just do the do's and don't the don'ts, then what well, you know that will maybe somehow leverage God in a way that. You know, I can get that job that I've been praying for. And, and I, or I will get that spouse. God, I'm being good because I want that person to be my spouse. And so we're kind of, you know, we're, we're trying to impress God. And some people want to change to try to prove themselves to other people. See, We're always kind of tendency to compare ourselves. I'm 48, so I should have this level of career, this level of education, this level of income, you know, this size of church, because that will then validate me because that's kind of, you know, where everybody else at least that I can see is. So I just kind of, I want to fit that kind of a thing. So we try to prove ourselves to God. We try to prove our, ourselves to other people. We want to prove ourselves. Some people change, want to change because they want to prove themselves to themselves. You know, I, I can do this. I can stop whenever I want. Those kinds of reasons. And the problem is this, church family. Any of those reasons, any of those reasons, put us in the center of change. 
And it becomes about making me look good for my glory, which was the very thing that got me in the graveyard in the first place. That's what sin is. Sin is living for me and my glory. It's living life my way instead of living for God. And isn't that what Jesus confronted the scribes and the Pharisees about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said to them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not, you're not going to see heaven. It's not going to happen. See, these these scribes and Pharisees, these religious enemies of Christ, they, they didn't so much need to repent of their bad works, but of their good works. Listen to this quote. The thing that really separates us from God is not so much our sin, but our damnable good works. And thus to be poor in spirit means that we realize at the core of our hearts that we are powerless, that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we don't deserve God, and that whatever we receive from God is a gift, not a debt. And notice I'm talking about the realization of powerlessness and the realization of bankruptcy and the realization of unworthiness and uncleanness. Because you see, everybody... Everybody is poor in spirit, whether they know it or not. Everybody. But not everybody is blessed. Not everybody. Only those who feel their guilt and feel their failures and feel their helplessness and feel their unworthiness and feel their emptiness and they don't try to hide these things under a cloak of self-sufficiency but they're honest about them and they are grieved and they're driven to the grace of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the beggarly poor, the impoverished poor, the I'm broke poor. And this soul this so much flies in the face of our, of our self-help culture, doesn't it? Because we can go to the bookstores this afternoon and shelf upon shelf of books will be lined with self-help books written by experts who are trying to tell us we don't need to listen to the experts. And, and, and so it's so hard for us to to want to admit that we are that that we just are broke. I mean, we so we have our problems and we say, okay, well, I think, you know, I've got these problems and I need help, so I think I'll try Jesus. You don't try Jesus. You bow before Jesus. He's the emperor. He's the king. And that's just so hard for people like me. Because I like my rightness. I do. I like being right. It it tastes like prime rib. Just, it's so good. You're right. Say that again, honey. You're right. Say it again, Sarah. You're right. Just... And, and I, I'm just depraved. Your pastor's depraved. Did you know that? And for, you know, on top of that, on top of that, we live in a culture that, look, you know, 
what is the first thing that your, in, your auto insurance company tells you that you need to do you know, whenever there's a car accident? Uh, well, call them. No, that's not what they tell you. It's not. What they tell you when you're in a car accident is this. Never admit fault! <laughs> Never admit fault! Even if it was your fault. Even if you T-boned that thing. I mean, I'm telling you, you drove that thing right into the tree. And that's not my fault. Well, don't admit it. Now, let the police do the process and all that. Okay. All right, I get that. But we live in that kind of a culture, don't we? So, well, what if I admit fault? Because if I admit, if I admit before the God of the universe that I'm liable and that I'm guilty and that I'm at fault, then what will, what will happen? He, he'll throw the book at me. That's what he'll do. He will throw the book at me. And here's the good news. Jesus says, you admit your fault. I'll take the book. I'll take the blame. I'll take the liability. See? I mean, that is our faith. That we come to God and we say, I, I'm bankrupt. And then God our Father throws the book at Jesus. You know that's what happened, don't you? I mean, isn't that why 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Same word as Matthew 5, 3. Same word. Not working poor. Impoverished poor. Yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus entered my world. Jesus came to my cemetery. Jesus stepped into my graveyard. Jesus took a seat at my table and he consumed all of the guilt and all of the shame of all of the hurts and all of the past. He took it upon himself and he told me, now get on my back. Get on my back. And he was crucified for my addictions and my sin and my disease and my iniquities. I got on his back. He said, get on my back. And I got on his back and he died. Now what? Oh, now what? He got up. That's what. He got up. And he took all of the pain and all of the sin and all of the uncleanliness and all of the impurity and he took it upon him and he killed death there in that grave. He killed it. And by the power of God, the power of the Spirit of God that raised him up to life, his Spirit now is in my life. And now I have his life. And so now I have a new destiny. The kingdom of heaven. And now I have new cravings, new cravings, new desires. See, see, my destiny is not merely secure for the future, but my present. Oh, he gives me new cravings, new desires. 
And so that's why Jesus says later on in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That describes, Jesus blesses those hungering and thirsting with righteousness because they belong to him now. And so I, I, don't have, I don't crave those old cravings from the past because he's given me, oh, that, there was, that was, I thought that was prime rib. That's not. That's beef jerky. He's got the prime rib. He's got the good stuff. And, and I have a new destiny and I have a new craving and now I have a new identity. I, see, through Christ, I am a child of God. I'm an heir of the kingdom. Isn't that why later on Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. So I don't have to prove myself to myself. I don't have to prove myself to you. I don't have to prove myself to God. I belong to him. I mean, he's my father. I'm his child. You know, the, my boys, Ben and Brandon, they don't have to prove themselves that they are you know, my sons. They are my sons. They belong to me. I love them. All of this, all of this in heaven too. So why would he do this? Because he loves us, that's why. What's in it for him? Love. Love. He created us. He's good. He's caring. He didn't make us to torture us or taunt us. He's a generous, giving God. And every one of those counterfeit idols, every one of those counterfeit idols will say, it's all about you, and then they proceed to take. And they take, they take your time, they take your money, they take your marriage, they take your job, they'll take your health, they'll take your life, and they'll take your eternity. But the true God who created heaven and earth, who put on flesh, who died in my grave and by God's power rose, he says, it's not about you. And then he proceeds to give and give and give and give. And he says, he says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Blessed are the poor. Jesus promises that he will bless those who come to him with empty hands by giving them his kingdom. He doesn't just give me a place at the table. He gives me the kingdom. Now, what? What? What's your graveyard? What banquet table are you feasting around? What is it? What is unmanageable in your life? You're not going to get out by yourself. You're not. You're not God. You're powerless. We're powerless. We're bankrupt. We need help. Jesus is help. Jesus, who died, 
in our kingdom so that we can live in his kingdom. Who tasted death at our table so that we could feast life at his table. What? You want to be blessed? Here's what the king says. Blessed are those invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's what the king says. Jesus blesses those who come to him with empty hands by giving them the kingdom. So then come.